I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. My guest today is Andre Kalanzopoulos. He is perhaps the most famous current figure in the world of big tobacco. He's worked at Philip Morris International, the huge tobacco conglomerate, for almost 40 years. He's been the chief operating officer, the chief executive officer. He's now chairman of the board. And I want to be talking to him today for two reasons. One is, you know, what's it like to head one of the most vilified companies in the world selling a product that kills half the people who use it as designed. But at the same time, he has been the most forward-thinking and outspoken of the big tobacco leaders in advocating for a rapid transition from cigarettes and other combustible forms of tobacco to e-cigarettes, inhalable forms, and other harm reduction approaches. So, Andre, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me on Psychoactive. Well, Ethan, thank you very much for having me and thank you for this uh, very nice introduction, which I don't think I deserve everything you said, but I'm very happy to be on the show. 
Okay, so let me let me revamp it a bit then. So some people, you know, would regard you as sort of the devil incarnate, right? The guy mm -hmm. who's leading one of the biggest companies in the world that's selling these tobacco cigarettes, cancer sticks that kills half of all long-term users when used as directed, right? You know, 8 million people going to die this year around the world from smoking, uh, either directly or from secondhand smoke in some cases. On the other hand, You've also been the head of a company which has made what appears to be of all the big tobacco companies the most serious commitment to to basically shifting out of combustible cigarettes into other forms of nicotine consumption that are widely believed to be much safer. So I want to start off by saying, you know, I saw the fellow, uh, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Oljak, your CEO, the guy who worked for you for many years has replaced you as a CEO. Correct. Yeah. He said last year, he goes, I want to allow this company to leave smoking behind. I think in the UK, 10 years from now, maximum, you completely solve the problem of smoking. And when he was then asked if that meant Philip Morris would stop selling traditional cigarettes in the UK within that time, he replied, absolutely. So say a little more about that. Well, let's give some context for the audience. Uh, clearly, it's very well known cigarettes cause disease and are addictive and premature deaths. So what is less known is the reason or the main reason for that. And the main reason for that is combustion, the fact that we burn tobacco. And that's what creates most of the toxic substances that cause morbidity and mortality. So the answer to resolving the problem for the people that would otherwise continue using cigarettes is not to combust the substrate. And the first thing we did is to develop a portfolio of products that comprise heated tobacco, so heated at temperatures that don't create combustion, which diminishes very significantly the toxicants generated by 90 or 95%. We also have products with what is more known in the US, like e-vapor products. And we also have products that are in the form of pouches that contain no tobacco at all. So all these products do contain nicotine because that's important for smokers to switch, but they don't combust, so we have a very substantial re reduction in their toxicity. Mm -hmm. The second thing to do, and we've done, is to substantiate scientifically that these products actually in preclinical and clinical trials demonstrate reduction of toxicity, exposure to the toxicants, and eventually, uh, you know, a promise of a reduction in morbidity and mortality. And we have submitted these studies to many countries, including to the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration, which issued an order that these products uh, reduce the exposure and authorize their sale in the US. So I think uh, on one side, we need manufacturers to invest in developing these products and then put their heart and their money behind convincing existing smokers to switch to these products. Mm -hmm. But this is the first uh, step. And the second step clearly, and I'm sure we'll discuss this, is to have regulators in the US and around the world adopting the right policies 
that differentiate these products, that cigarettes recognizing the absence of combustion and the lower toxicity, so the potential benefit to public health, so that we encourage through commercial activities on our side, the regulatory frameworks of the other side smokers to switch. And if we do that properly, I think we can phase out cigarettes very fast. Now, what do you say when people say, you know, until you got longitudinal studies, 20, 30 years of data, it's all bullshit. I mean, that we don't really know what these things are going to do to people 20, 30 years from now. So let's just hold your horses and let's, you know, hold back on making a big swish into the non-combustibles. What's your response to them? Well, my response is that every day we lose in letting people have it as an alternative only to continue smoking or quitting is a lost day in public health. The second thing is that all the precursors to uh, what you call epidemiological studies or long-term studies is preclinical and short-term clinical studies. And if you have very substantial reduction in exposure to toxicants, it's very natural to assume you will have reduction in disease caused by these toxicants because the toxicants are known. If we do nothing, nobody will adopt these products. And, you know, the, the subject is a bit complex, but it's no different from essentially trying to convince consumers to move from using fossil fuels to renewable energy. It's not that the renewable energies are proven to have zero impact on the environment. Actually, they don't. But they're vastly better than burning coal or fossil fuels. And we do both uh, the, you know, the products and the regulatory measures to convince people who consume energy to switch to this alternative. So we are trying to apply an extreme precautionary principle here, but clearly there are also legitimate concerns. Okay? There are legitimate concerns that we need to minimize impact in undesirable audiences, particularly youth, also people that have quit and because these products are better than cigarettes, maybe they will come back. That's why the regulatory framework has to be fairly strict on how you commercialize these products. But all that is feasible. This is not a reason not to allow these products on the markets and then deprive smokers forever from these products because they have the right also to be informed that these products exist, what they are, what they are not, because they still contain nicotine are addictive, they are not zero risk, but they are much better than cigarettes for the ones who would like to continue using nicotine products. Now, people will come back and say, well, why don't you just get out of the damn cigarette industry entirely? Like, when it comes to the rest of the industry, do you guys talk with one another? Do you talk to the CEOs or chairs? Uh, do you guys lead? Are they just looking, if you get too far out ahead on shifting a harm reduction, just to scoop up your market share? Uh, you know, are you better than all the mm -hmm. other guys? You know, I mean, British American tobacco, Japan tobacco, Imperial, all those. What's the nature of industry at the, at the, at the executive, the top level? in terms of the movement to harm reduction? Okay, clearly we have been leading in this domain. For various reasons, other companies in the industry were slower in entering this domain. And we can examine why. But the thing is, once these products start being available to consumers and consumers start switching to them, I don't think there is an option from a pure competitive point of view for other manufacturers 
not to enter the domain. Now, to do these products, if you start today, you're not going to have a product tomorrow. It takes years to develop the products. And once you have developed a product, you believe, just the ability to switch consumers, then you need to, to do all your preclinical and clinical trials. And then after that, you need to do the right market surveillance to avoid unintended audiences, but long-term established epidemiology as well. So it's a big investment to make, and it takes multiple years. We talk, for us, it took, maybe we're slow, but it took us six, seven years to develop the first heated tobacco product, and another three, four years to do the substantiation. So it's a 10-year investment of multi-billion dollars. Because these products, because they have lower taxes, and that's part of the regulatory uh, framework, they also have higher margins that justify your investment. Then once we reach a sufficient critical mass of smokers that have switched to these products, then do side measures or other regulatory interventions like cap and trade or nicotine reduction as the FDA is discussing. So you've kind of further incentivized consumers to switch, but also manufacturers on a stick and carrot base to start investing now because you know in 10 years, 15 years, the measures are going to be so drastic on the people that have not invested in these new products that it will be not sustainable from a business perspective. And what is important, uh, sorry if I sound like a broken yeah. record, is that public health authorities and governments get aligned behind harm reduction. Because if you're a manufacturer and you have very ambiguous views in your country about what these products should be authorized or not, in some countries, they banned evapor products. In some countries, they banned both evapor products and heated tobacco products as a precautionary principle. So that doesn't incentivize manufacturers around the world to invest heavily in these products. So having the governments and public health being aligned that, yes, the best thing is to quit. But if you don't quit, then the second best is to move to these products and create the right incentives as the Stick and carrot. Yeah, I sometimes get this sense, and maybe tell me if this is wrong or not, that in the mm -hmm. countries that are good on harm reduction, like the United Kingdom or maybe New Zealand, mm -hmm. that in those countries, you know, you, PMI, are willing to kind of really, you know, be very non-aggressive with selling your cigarettes, really to pull back and, you know, not do anything that people would, I mean, they don't like you selling in the first place, but that you're not going to push it hard. Whereas a country like Mexico, which is banning basically all all the harm reduction products, or certainly the e-cigarettes and the heat not burn things, you know, it seems like you're more, I mean, so I, I saw, I think you got a letter from some of uh, the, the harm reduction supportive scientists saying, you know, what do you do with Marlboro Shuffle? There's a Marlboro Shuffle, some product you have in Mexico, it's a marketing campaign, mm -hmm. especially attractive to young people. It's got these capsule things. It's an opportunity to try mm -hmm. different flavors. I mean, is there that sense that if a government's going to shut you out on harm reduction, you're just going to be a little more of a bad boy when it comes to marketing cigarettes? Absolutely not. Uh, first of all, just to give a little bit of a perspective here. Um, today, in the markets where we are present with this product, okay, or we can be present, and if you look at PMI in total, more than 80% of our commercial money, mar marketing sales forces go behind these products, although they still represent a fraction of the volume. Okay? So we mm -hmm. put our money where our mouth is. 
Secondly, uh, you know, it's not that if you are aggressive in marketing certain products, it's kind of retaliation vis-a-vis governments, okay? okay. First of all, governments don't care about these things. Uh, the second thing is in, in certain markets where, I mean, Mexico essentially banned the imports of all these products, okay? So the, the only thing is to continue the dialogue with the government to convince them that that was not the brightest idea they had, okay? And on the other side, you need to do a minimum in the cigarette market uh, where you have nothing else in order to maintain at least your market share. Otherwise, you just, from a shareholder's perspective, you move your market share to competitors. But we are not investing behind cigarettes, okay? Mm-hmm. And whenever a market is, makes it possible for us to commercialize these products, we do commercialize, okay? I would love... Indonesia to finally adapt all the regulations necessary. Philippines were moving in the right direction and we started selling these products there. And I hope you mentioned Mexico, you know, people in Mexico will see the opportunity in the government and take the right measure rather than banning these products and condemning people to only smoke. Mm -hmm. But there is no quiproquo in the two. Okay, so let me press you harder. I mean, then we'll get more into the harm reduction stuff. Some of the other yeah. skeptics will say, so when it comes to, for example, bans on tobacco advertising, that there was recently mm-hmm. a referendum in Switzerland, right, where you live, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that PMI and other companies opposed the Swiss referendum to ban virtually all tobacco advertising. Now, was that mm-hmm. because it was also a ban on non-combustibles, or what was your, why, why were you doing that? Correct, and that applies in general, you know, to all institutions, my plea to them is the following. Differentiate non-combustible products from combustible products, okay? Or scientifically proven reduced risk products. Let's call them this. And then you can do whatever you want with cigarettes. In any case, in many countries, there is not much more that is available to, you know, prohibit. So the reality is on cigarettes, you know, as I said, be my guest and do whatever they want. Right. But but you're saying PMI now, when it comes to, you know, if governments want to increase taxes on cigarettes, ban advertising, limit where you can take it. At this point, PMI is not opposing those types of things anywhere, so long as it's focused on cigarettes and not on the non-combustibles. Is that right? Yeah. Let, let's take one after the other. When you talk about tobacco products, or even worse, all nicotine products, and you apply all the same rules to all these products, then clearly you favor cigarettes. Because the new categories, to various degrees, are relatively unknown to smokers. So you need some differentiating factor so you can explain to consumers what these products are. I'm not saying TV advertising or radio advertising or things like this, but the ability to contact people the ability to them to try this product. I mean, you have countries where you cannot offer a consumer the possibility to try a, a smoke-free product by law. So how, how is a smoker going to try this product and spend money to buy it if they can't try it? So it's the minimum necessary to communicate with consumers. The second thing is you do need differentiated taxation between the two categories because one is easy to market, it's very well known. The other requires, as I said previously, a very significant investment in product development 
and scientific assessment preclinical clinical. So we don't have the same span by any measure between the two. I mean, if you want to create a new cigarette, you just, maximum you will do is adapt the geometry of the packaging and you have a new product in six months. Mm -hmm. And the others have horizons of four to eight years. Mm -hmm. So this has to be recognized. In terms of taxation, we've always said governments always increase excise taxes on cigarettes. And they will continue increasing, both for revenue reasons, but also as a measure to diminish consumption. So they can increase, always say, don't do abrupt one-offs. Have a plan and increase every year by the amount you want, and then this is perfect. Okay, we know what's happening if you have one-offs. You have contraband, and then the legitimate sales go down. And illegal products get the market. But what is more important is that they keep that some differentiation between the smoke-free category and the smoking right. products no. because the same thing we do for electric cars. We, they pay less taxes and so on. So I, I think we're saying something that is unreasonable. Yeah, you know, no, it make, makes sense. Let me ask you, what's your thoughts on these menthol bans? Right? I think the European Union did it. Uh, the U.S. did it. You used to work. I think you first started working with PMI in Poland. Poland's one of the biggest consumers of uh, mentholated yeah. cigarettes. Are they a good idea? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Okay. First of all, the European Union did ban menthol in cigarettes. The U.S. has not yet banned. Okay? Right. So that's the first thing. Yes, I'm supporting the measure as a measure that when we have good availability of e-vapor products, heated tobacco products or pouches, that's a nice way to push consumers of menthol into the new categories. It has to happen in the right time. Okay, outright banning menthol without having smoke-free alternatives, essentially what happened in the European Union is that the sm most smokers switched to normal cigarettes, I mean, to non-menthol cigarettes, okay? Plus, you see some people buying menthol and mentholating their packs because it's very easy. So I don't think we had the effect that we wanted to have, and we would have much better effect if it happened the way you described, if alternatives were on the market, and then you give a very good chance to these new products to be adopted. But people didn't really quit. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Now, there's this other proposal that's been put forward in the U.S. in June of this year to basically reduce the level of nicotine in cigarettes to the point where they're almost not cigarettes anymore. And there's not cutting it by half, by cutting it by 90, 95 percent. And the estimate is this would save millions of lives. My sense is it might actually be the movement where we switch to a de facto tobacco prohibition and launch cigarettes into the big leagues of major global drug trafficking. But what's your views on this reduced nicotine thing? Will there ever be a moment where this makes sense to do? Or is that just pushing on the supply side controls too far? The supply side controls, as I said, is measures you can take when you have good availability of alternatives to avoid what you just described, illicit trade, self-nicotinization, and so on. Okay? So people spike their cigarettes that have no nicotine with nicotine and so on. I think this has to be seen in the U.S. in the context of the policy announced a few years ago by the commissioner and uh, Mitch Zeller, the head of uh, tobacco, in the the FDA, FDA. that they saw a dual strategy. The one is, on one side, we make alternatives available that are scientifically proven and authorized, and on the other side, in the right moment, we reduce nicotine in cigarettes as a measure. It's not the only one, but that's the only one the FDA has under control. Now, if we talk about cap and trade and other measures of this nature, probably they are more effective. But the principle of allowing alternatives and then do the right regulatory measures at a certain stage to accelerate the phase out are rational regulations. Mm-hmm. The danger in general is we take one side of the regulation and we forget the other, okay? So to me, this is a measure that is a stick and carrot measure. It's a phase-out measure, and it has to be seen with other possible measures and not on its own, okay? But the principle, I think, it's clear, probably repeating myself, You need availability of these products, you need the right framework, and then eventually the phase-out measures at the right moment, and that I'm fully supportive. You know, I'm part of this bi-monthly conference call with a lot of the leading tobacco control experts who are sympathetic to harm reduction. And it's fair to say, you know, none of them fully trust 
you, PMI, big tobacco, people vary in these things. But the one issue everybody's on is, you know, PMI is out there claiming that there's 12 and a half million adult smokers who have switched completely to ICOs from cigarettes and stopped smoking, not counting Russia and Ukraine. So even more than that. And the mm -hmm. question is, how do you know? And they're asking you for data. You know, they say you're claiming what your market share is with ICOs and all this. There mm -hmm. must be data and you're not being transparent. You're not handing over the information. You're sending your people to meet with them and you're saying, yes, we understand, blah, 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 blah. But that basically you're holding back on providing the information that could really substantiate what you claim to be the powerful substitution effects for mm -hmm. ICOs, for people switching. So why, why are you holding back? Why not be as totally transparent? as possible on this stuff? First of all, we want to be 100% transparent, okay? The thing is, ICOs and e-vapor products are a rather recent phenomenon, okay? So in the cigarette market, you have fluctuations over the last three years that are fairly big. You had COVID, where in some countries you increased consumption, the US, in some countries you had a decrease in consumption of cigarettes. In some countries, you still have ICOS and Evapor being a small part of the market, 5-6%. So, and you have price changes and tax changes. So the data needs to be cleaned up from all this in order to be available to scientists to study. And the only way to do that is to have the right scientists with you so you explain all the other influencing phenomena. Okay? It's a fact that we know from all the consumer surveys we do, and we're going to make available all the panel data, that people who switch to ICOs, you know, if out of 100 people switch to, who buy ICOs, I'm sorry, about 75% stay with ICOs and 60, probably 70% switch completely to ICOs. And that you have the follow-up of the consumers. You can say it's a bit biased data mm -hmm. by the panel, but that's a fact. On the other side, as the ICOS in particular share is building up, clearly the data will become more visible. It's very visible in Japan. The category is at almost 30% of the market, so it's very visible data. Right. I mean, you've seen I think the visible cigarette sales as exactly. ICOS sales have increased. Exactly. Yeah. So you yeah. do, you start seeing in Italy and other markets. So I think it's a question of time, but it's not a lack of transparency. The data is there. But if we make the effort to clean up the data from other factors, Mm -hmm. the, the data also can be used, but you need to take price increases, price changes, tax increases, and the COVID period. So uh, it's not something you take off the shelf and you give. We need to do the analysis. That's all. Yeah. I understand. I just just a little, you know, piece of advice or encouragement that for the people who are most sympathetic to your, you know, what you're trying to do in terms of your transition out of combustibles, being as transparent as possible with evidence would actually make a real difference. Now, let me turn to the opposition to this thing. Mike Bloomberg, who has put hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, initially it was all about trying to fight smoking. He's still trying to fight smoking. And I assume at this point you would probably agree with a fair bit about what Bloomberg's doing to try to, you know, restrict smoking, increase restrictions, all that sort of stuff. But meanwhile, he's adopted an aggressively anti-tobacco harm reduction uh, position. And he is a mm -hmm. major funder of the campaign for tobacco-free kids, which seems to have evolved mm -hmm. from an anti-smoking organization to a nicotine abstinence organization. He's the uh, ambassador, official ambassador of World Health Organization, which seems to be taking anti-scientific positions on harm reduction. You know, what do you think's driving these guys? Sometimes people act on ideology, sometimes on self 
self-interest. It's difficult for me to understand sometimes why people that used to be pro-harm reduction, all of a sudden, you know, they move the debate from comparing these smoke-free products with cigarettes, which is the problem, to a zero-risk product. So I guess it's ideology. I guess it's a bit of panic because when you don't have an enemy uh, or the enemy is doing the right things, uh, you know, some NGOs think they're going to lose their purpose. Some of the audience may remember that two years ago we had we had what we call the Evali disease. So yeah. people that were inhaling something and they had serious problems with the lungs and eventually some of people died, which is terrible. But this had nothing to do with e-vapor products. This were, it was proven that were people that used, I don't know, cannabinoids and other you know, oils. They were illegally produced uh, THC cartridges. So it, it appears exactly. to be entirely about some knuckleheads putting vitamin E acetate into uh, right. the, the THC cartridges. But everybody blamed, you know, the vapors, the e-cigarettes, the nicotine e-cigarettes, and that's what's stuck in the public consciousness. And, and it does really appear that, you know, that, that the anti-tobacco and anti-harm reduction forces really took advantage of a broad public misperception in order to advance their agenda. I don't know if I'm just putting, <laughs> saying exactly what you were going to say there, but probably. Well, more or less you are saying correctly. <laughs> and the question I ask is who is accountable for that? Because, mm -hmm. you know, after the peak of this crisis, unfortunate crisis, even in Europe, in France and many other countries, you had 65-70% of the smokers who started to believe that e-vapor products are equally bad or worse than cigarettes, mm -hmm. which I think is a public health disaster. So I've heard some people say that, that I mean, it makes sense to me in a way, that you, know, you guys probably still make more money from cigarettes than you do from all these harm reduction things, you know? And that you know, it's basically a cash cow for big tobacco to keep selling cigarettes. And that Mike Bloomberg and WHO and Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids and all of these anti-harm reduction folks, by virtue of putting out all these lies and blocking the adoption of harm reduction, that they've essentially become your biggest allies, that essentially you should be sending a thank you note to Mike Bloomberg, at least for the short term, because he's helping bolster your cigarette sales. And in fact, it does appear that in some places, cigarette sales have stopped going down because people no longer see the, you know, e-cigarettes and heat not burn devices as, as safer. What do you say? Are they basically de facto your ally now in terms of short-term profits? Factually, you are correct. By demonizing the better products, you know, you make people believe that cigarettes are the only alternative. And frankly speaking, yes, they help the people that want only to sell cigarettes. Because it would be ideal if the World Health Organization was at least neutral on this product. Right. But it's but probably the framework... short-term bottom line in terms of the profits of cigarettes. No, the profits of cigarettes, you know, as I said many times also to investors, the margin we make on this product, smoke-free products, is better than cigarettes. So we don't only have a moral incentive, we have a financial incentive to sell these products, and they are better because we convinced regulators around the world to give us better tax treatment than on mm -hmm. cigarettes. And they understand that if you have a better product, 
you need to incentivize both manufacturers and consumers to switch to this product. Okay, so right. I, I think it makes sense to us not to sell cigarettes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, what people also say, right, is look, what, what the what your big tobacco and PMI really wants is they want to evolve from a world in which a billion plus people are smoking cigarettes and a hundred million are using these uh, harm reduction products, these uh, reduced risk products, to a world in which. 2 billion people are using the reduced risk products and only 100 million people are smoking. And that's the way they'll sustain their profits. People will still be addicted to nicotine. Uh, now, I mean, look, personally, it seems to me that from a public health perspective, that's a major advance. But is in fact that the objective here, that imagining a world in which, you know, uh, you know, even more people are using these nicotine products than currently smoke, but where the cumulative harms to health are much lower? Is that is that the long term strategy? No, the long-term strategy is to switch smokers, minimize initiation to any nicotine product, and then continue diversifying the company into new domains or our revenues. I'm talking about Philip Morris here, not our competitors. Mm -hmm. uh, where we have other sources of revenue than nicotine products. And recently, we bought two pharma companies, because we have some expertise in oral and uh, inhalation delivery. So we think we can repurpose certain existing drugs into past delivery through inhalation so that we start moving away from pure nicotine dependence. I don't think it's feasible, even in the wildest imagination, uh, of a tobacco company to believe that we're going to increase the number of people who use nicotine products over time. This but, is but not going not? to happen. I mean, well, let me ask you, why not? I mean, if you think about it, when tobacco came out of, you know, the Americas 300 years ago, it sort of swept the world. I mean, it's basically like, I think it's only second only to coffee, maybe, and alcohol. There's something incredibly compelling about it. People enjoy the drug effect of nicotine. And if you can turn nicotine into something that's barely more problematic or dangerous for people than coffee... Why not? Why shouldn't we look forward to a world in which nicotine is sold in forms that are you know, safer than alcohol and almost as safe as coffee is just part of uh, human existence and human pleasure and human functioning? What's wrong with that? Why not have that as your objective? Or is it just that you can't say it because it's not politic no. to say it? Well, look, nicotine is addictive, okay? But the only form of addictiveness, as you rightly said, of nicotine is through cigarettes that has all the toxins. Now, people do not use nicotine products just for nicotine. They use them for the taste. They use them for the ritual. The same way, you know, delivering an alcohol pill to people is not going to be as pleasurable as a glass of wine. I mean, for the ones that consume wine, okay? So there are many elements in the, the whole experience of a smoker that you cannot dissociate entirely. Yes, we can imagine a world where we have demonstrated, that needs to be demonstrated, that, say, a nicotine pouch used with the right moderation probably causes no disease and no premature deaths. And then we will have the debate whether these products can be made available on a different regulatory basis or not. But these products have to remain regulated, as alcohol is regulated and so on. 
Now, the task we have is not to recruit new people. The task we have is to convince the existing smokers to move to this product. There will be people who start with nicotine products. And I think from a public health perspective, if they start, the best thing is that they will never start. And that is our advice. But if they start, they start with products that reduce their risk from day one, not after 30 years. So I think we need to go step by step here mm-hmm. in the public health debate because we still have disagreement or whether for smokers that smoke for 30 years, we make new products available. Mm-hmm. Once we resolve that debate, we can discuss about nicotine 10 okay. years down the line. Okay, well, that's how potential, I see. Well, what about potential medical value of nicotine? I mean, you, you know, you read some reports about how it may be helpful vis-a-vis Parkinson's, vis-a-vis Alzheimer's. I mean, why isn't there more scientific research on this front? And can you envision nicotine becoming a widely prescribed medical substance for all sorts of ills? Are, and are you doing that kind of research? Clearly, in the literature, there are some diseases you, you just named them, you know, serotype colitis, Parkinson's where there's less prevalence among people with nicotine. And we are doing some research in this area. Okay? But that is a limited number of diseases uh, that where nicotine or nicotine derivatives can be a therapeutical molecule. Okay? That's a medical product. So um, the problem we're facing today is, yes, there are certain uses of nicotine that could be therapeutical, and have a positive effect. But as you said previously, the problem today is that we move the debate that nicotine is the cause of disease. And mm-hmm. I think we need to clarify that debate. You said it yourself, Ethan, that nicotine and the FDA said it, yes, it's addictive, but it's probably not the, certainly not the primary cause of disease. Uh, well, let's just finish mm-hmm. up with a few personal questions here, Andre. I mean, I think you and I are, I think we're born in the same year, 1957, but we've had very different, you know, life trajectories. And I'm curious, you know, you started off as an engineer, you know, working on robotics, and then you left at age 28 to join Philip Morris. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. when you made that decision back in the 80s to join a tobacco company, did you have any qualms <laughs> about going to work for Big Tobacco? Did you take some shit from your friends or family for doing that? Were you already a smoker? I mean, how did you think about it back then? Well, you know, uh, actually, yeah, I started as an electrical engineer. Then one day I took the decision to take a master in business administration and change my career orientation. And actually joining Philip Morris was purely accidental. Mm-hmm. I had to go and do my military service in Greece after my MBA. Then the law changed. I didn't have to do uh, and I looked for something last minute, and I had some offers actually <laughs> for the anecdote from companies like uh, Motorola, Hewlett Packard, Aston Young, and but here comes this company that offers me not an engineering-related job to some degree, but you know a, a job in business development and planning and finance, which were the areas I really wanted to learn. So I didn't have any issue with cigarettes. Did you smoke back then? uh, I used to smoke cigars then much more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I come from Greece. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, there was not so much, uh, you know, stigma on cigarettes. Yes, some friends asked me why you join an industry that will disappear in the next 10 years. Actually, it never happened. Uh, 
But they didn't and ask I you think, why you're joining it. I mean, they didn't ask you why you're joining an industry where, you know, half the people who use it are going to die. I mean, you didn't get that kind of flack at the time? Not, not really. Yeah. I mean, look, the people have the choice and they can decide whether they smoke or not. It's a bit more complex than that, as we learn in reality. But there was, you know, we talk 85 now, okay? It's, it's mm-hmm. so many years ago. But also, when you enter a company, you realize that many of the things that the industry was accused were not real. Some of the things could have been done better, undeniably, in the past. But that also gives you an opportunity to change things if you are within a company. And, uh, you know, once I became a bit more senior in the company, it was rather obvious to me and many others, that the best contribution we can make is to change the product. And that's precisely what what we have done. The whole thing about harm reduction, is it something that kind of hit you or you began to appreciate in the late 90s or early 2000s? Was there an aha moment for you to say, we got to move in this direction? Was it simply the fact that new technologies were emerging that made it possible? What was- it's a combination of all that. It, uh, it was clearly... You know, it was mid-90s where I was in a position and many others of my generation where we said, look, it's combustion that is the problem. So we have the ability to change the product. Yes, the technology was not there yet, but there were some first embryos of technology. Then Philip Morris, as you know, it was the first company to publicly recognize that cigarettes are addictive and cause disease. So once you recognize the impacts of your product, that's the first step to innovate against the product. I mean, that applies to food, applies to energy. The moment you say my product causes impacts, and many do in this pla- on this planet, then the next step is, okay, let's move it. And that gives you every reason to tell your R&D that now is the time to do it. And the technologies came, and we were lucky enough to have the product. Okay, but you need determination to do this, and you need also the acceptance of the impacts of your product. And that's something that, to many CEOs, is one thing I have learned at my advice. Recognize the impacts of your product, whether you're in food, whether you're in whatever industry, because then you can tell your R&D, we can do better. And then you have innovation, that reduces the impacts of the products, which we badly need on Earth. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love addicted to true crime catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a e crime central crave adventure explore asian action movies on hayah 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Oftentimes, if, I mean, you look at the big auto companies, right? I mean, they just kept making the gasoline-powered cars forever and ever. They would look at electrical stuff, but they weren't pushing hard until you get a Tesla coming along. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. outside that basically wants to take down the big auto companies. And then they have competition from outside. And I wonder, in terms of big tobacco, I mean, there's a sense of, yeah, we can do this. We'll do it at our own pace. We'll make the transition slowly. But that what's probably missing to some extent are the really the Tesla equivalents. I mean, Jewel was that until Altria bought a third of them, right? Um, you know, you have small companies like Enjoy that are pure plays on uh, on the e-cigarettes. Um, but it, it, sometimes I wonder, you know, what you really, really need to get you guys, not just PMI, but the other companies to really move faster is a company that was totally independent, had no commitment to cigarettes, that essentially wanted to take you guys out as competition, and that that's what's missing. No, actually... I think we were the ones who disrupted this industry because we started the process of developing these products well before Julu was even a thought. Okay, mm-hmm. So we started in 2004-2005. Uh, we built the R&D from zero. We had to hire people from the outside who only joined this company you know, because they believe these products have an important role to play in public health. They most came from pharma. So we created the infrastructure to do this, and as of 2008-9, we started really pushing these products. There was no jewel or mud. There were evapor products, but evapor products we developed also. We knew that for existing smokers, immediately they will have less ability to convert them fully than a heated tobacco product, not because of the nicotine, but also because of the taste characteristics that are important for the smoke. Mm-hmm. So. I think we decided to disrupt our own industry on our own because also my thought and the thought of the senior executives on the board is if we don't do it, somebody else will do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we did it. And I think we opened the way for other companies to do the same. And you see much more products now than before. You guys, for a long time, you know, you had the network distribution trains, the production, all that sort of stuff that made the big tobacco companies remain dominant for so long. 
once you mm -hmm. shift away from combustibles into these other types of devices, isn't there the potential for much greater competition from companies that have not previously been involved in the tobacco nicotine field? Absolutely there is. And clearly for us is to remain at the forefront of the technological development and consumer service. I mean, we learned a lot with these new products because they have electronics. You need a completely different consumer journey. Uh, you need to open your own stores. You need to handhold the people who buy your product for weeks and come back often to them so they don't fall back to cigarettes. It's very easy to develop a product. Convincing, you know, doing the scientific assessment and convincing people to use it, it takes some knowledge and some science. And for as long as you are at the forefront, you know, you remain competitive. You know, many people can do search engines like Google, okay? It's not difficult to do a search engine. Doing it well in every aspect, it takes a lot of knowledge. And I hope we have accumulated that knowledge and we continue building it every day. So we remain at the forefront. That's the ambition. Right. Okay. And you say you're diversifying other industries, inhaling devices and stuff like this. I saw that you some years ago bought a little or bought into a small Israeli company, Sick Medical, which is developing a medical mm -hmm. cannabis inhaler. And I'm looking at the fact that like Altria, you know, is already investing pretty substantially into alcohol com beer companies, investing into marijuana companies in Canada. What about PMI? Are you guys looking at the uh, at the whole cannabis field? Uh, have you made any significant investments in if not, why not? Yeah, look, we've been looking at this and uh, I got this question a number of times. So there are two, if we look into the future, not the current situation, that is a situation in flux with everybody making claims about cannabis uh, without any preclinical or clinical substantial proof. I mean, we made a commitment to be a science-based company so we're not going out there and make right. you know, promises to consumers that are not true. And we need to warn the consumers about these products, what these products are and are not. And that right. requires scientific analysis and research. cannot be done just fly by night. Okay, so I got to ask you this. I mean, you grew up in Greece, which has a long tradition of cannabis use. Have you smoked marijuana? Have you enjoyed it? Do you? Greece? As a tradition of cannabis. Oh my not, God! No, not really. And I have to tell you, I have yeah. never, I have never smoked uh, cannabis, so I'm not. Uh, I don't have any expertise in this area. I may sound a bit, a bit retarded. It's, it's practically legal in Switzerland. Any time in America, I'm happy to share a joint with you. I think you'd probably enjoy it. <laughs> you know, although you know it is important because you know I think about. I've never liked cigarettes personally, um, mm -hmm. but you know, in some places, whether in Europe or the U.S., people typically mix the hash or sometimes marijuana with cigarettes, right? And so I mm -hmm. think it is important down the road that even though there's a consumer market for combining the two products that there has to be some commitment that there'll never be a marketing of cannabis combined with nicotine. I mean, is that something that you'd commit to down the road or you think the industry will commit to? Well, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this domain, but <laughs> I think inhalation of something you burn is the worst form of delivering any substance. So I wouldn't yeah. recommend to anybody to burn something in order to deliver the substance. That's exactly what we're trying to move away from. So yes, right. I can make that commitment 
anytime you want, we will not deliver. But when it comes to the harm, when it comes to the orals or the non-combustibles, I mean, I mean, the thing I do worry about is it's pretty clear for people who smoke marijuana occasionally that even smoking it, because it's you consume so little, it doesn't seem to present many harms to health, and it's sometimes the most efficient way to take it into your into your body. But the concern is if some of the non-combustibles start to get mixed with uh, cannabis in various forms, because then you combine the sort of addictive potential of nicotine with a psychoactive, you know, appeal of of cannabis, and that could potentially be a, a new public health problem that I that I do worry about. Okay, so my last two questions quickly, um, one personal, one bigger. On the personal level, I mean, you've spent, you know, virtually your entire adult life at Philip Morris International. You know, you've been a huge success there. When you look back, what do you regard as your greatest accomplishment? And what do you regard as your greatest failure or disappointment? I still believe my biggest accomplishment is the development, the commercialization of these products. Uh, the smoke-free products. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably something uh, I can be proud of. Uh, failures I can enumerate a lot <laughs> if we stay in this domain. Yeah. Uh, you know, why we have not done it earlier, why do we have not done it faster. Um, you know, I learned one thing in managing companies, that if you have to do something, do it now rather than wait, be it concerning products or people. Mm-hmm. I didn't wait much, but probably should have pushed more. Having said that, I think I'm happy that we have these products. I'm a bit disappointed that we don't still have the full backing of the public health community and regulators. Uh, that's something that you know I will continue working on and that the whole management team is continue working on. Mm-hmm. And on the big picture, I mean, do you think that this harm reduction future is inevitable, that this transition from combustibles to uh, non-smokables is inevitable? I hope so, and I think so. Uh, I think it's inevitable because existing smokers will be increasingly convinced to switch. Uh, Obviously, the most difficult group is the older people. Uh, and lower socioeconomic strata, there you need a bit more positive approach from governments to convince them. But the encouraging thing also is that less young people use uh, cigarettes or start with cigarettes. So I think a world without cigarettes is perfectly feasible. At least I hope we're going to see it not during my stay in Philip Morris because it's not going to be that long anymore. But definitely, I'm sure I'm going to see it during my lifetime. Mm. I have to say, I think I'm skeptical. You know, I think that if you look at how appealing cigarettes been for so long, that we can see a major transition to the non-smokables, but that there's going to still remain, you know, 5% of the world or whatever that just insists on taking it in that form. And then if we ultimately move towards ultimate prohibition, we're going to see a vast black market, just like we've seen with heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and cannabis. And that talking about the future of a smoke-free world is utopian, and sometimes I worry almost dangerous because it may result in us ultimately embracing the sort of criminalizations and criminal justice prohibitions that generated the horrific global drug war we've had for many decades. I understand what you say. Look, I, I don't think by arm twisting only you're going to achieve this. It has to become organic 
Uh, and the more companies work on this and convince consumers, the less cigarettes are fashionable and better products for the ones, as you said, that want to use nicotine and taste, uh, mm-hmm. becomes the, the better way of doing it, the most accepted way of doing it. I don't think we are in an arm-twisting situation where an organic acceptance that these products are better. Now, if you ask me in 10 years around the world, there will be still cigarettes. Yes, there will be. Because there will be smokers that you will never convince not to smoke. But if you ask me 20 years, maybe we will be there. Yeah, although I sometimes think about the fact, I think about all the governments that signed on to prohibiting cannabis decades ago when they didn't even know what it was. And now they have very substantial cannabis using populations. I think there's an ebb and flow in consumer taste and that people inevitably come back to these things. But listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate this frank conversation. I wish you, uh, you know, all the best luck in making this transition out of combustibles and into the smoke-free products as soon as possible. So... Thank you for the leadership you provided at the industry level in this, and I hope it can happen even quicker than uh, our opponents to harm reduction think is possible. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for your time, and thank you for giving me the opportunity as well. And I hope we'll talk again soon. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, we'll be talking about the Merry Pranksters, the Grateful Dead, and the Psychedelics Revolution of the 1960s with Mountain Girl Garcia. These were nice parties, you know, where we looked after people. We made sure people didn't get lost on the way to the parking lot. The whole point was to introduce people to a rather weak solution of LSD in these jugs of Kool-Aid, and so they wouldn't get, they wouldn't get overloaded. But that turned out to be super fun. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.